If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. I'm still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Wait, 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 Nick. We already did this. Yeah. We did how a bill really becomes a law. And I'm even putting a link to it in the show notes so that we can put the kibosh on the whole Schoolhouse Rock thing. That's fair. That little hopeful 1970s animated scrap of paper has gotten a lot of airtime here on Civics 101. Fine. But Hannah, I want to focus on that first step of the legislative process and just that first step. And to do it, I would like you to imagine a senator. Lying in bed, unable to sleep, tossing and turning all night. What could be interrupting their slumber? (laughs) Well, over the weekend, the senator was in their home state, and they went for a walk along the beach, and they saw, to their abject horror, a flotilla of trash, bottles and cans and plastic bags carpeting the shore. And the vision of it haunts their sleep. How awful. Something must be done. Something must be done. Exactly. And just before dawn, inspiration strikes. The weary senator flies back to D.C., takes out a pen, writes some words down, and silently hands it to the Senate clerk. Sounds like a Frank Capra film. And this bill goes through committee, it's voted on, Claude Rain shows up, and eventually it makes its way to the desk of the president to be signed into law. Our senator watching on with a tear in the eye. It's a story that I would really love to watch on a cold night, you know. But it's not really how laws are written, is it? No, not even remotely. So how are they written? Well, Hannah, hold on to your hat. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are talking about who actually writes the laws that govern our country. So, Nick, here's what I'd ask. Have you ever actually read a bill? That is the voice of the person who has dandled me on his knee and explained government to me more than anyone else in my life. Dan Casino, professor of government and politics at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Well, have you, Nick? I mean, answer the man's question. Have you ever read a bill? Well, I've tried. I mean, I've started to read a few. But honestly, whenever I've tried to, you know, look over a substantive piece of federal legislation, like an economic spending bill or whatever, I give up pretty quickly because they're often over a thousand pages. But to illustrate what a regular old everyday bill is like, Dan picked one for us to look at. So let's take a look at a bill that uh, I think is a pretty good chance of coming up. It was sponsored by Chuck Grassley. Uh, it's Senate Bill right now, 223. It's a bill to amend the Controlled Substances Act. And here's, here's what the bill says. 
Section 102 of the Controlled Substances Act, 21 U.S.C. 802, was amended, number one, by redesignating paragraph 58 as paragraph 59, two, by redesignating the second paragraph designated paragraph 57, relating definition C as drug felony, as paragraph 58, three, between paragraphs 57 and 58, so as redesignated, and 59, as so redesignated, two EMs to the left. Now, that is gibberish. That doesn't make any sense. That is gibberish. What is this law even about? So what it re- what it actually means is that there is a technical problem with the way the paragraphs are set up. So there's a, there's a paragraph under what is a serious drug felony in the U.S. Code, and there's supposed to be a bunch of subheadings like this is what a serious drug felony is, and one of the subheadings is off. But they have a section there about the indentation. It's not indented enough, so it's not clear if we say serious drug felony, if it includes this subsection below where it says serious drug felony, you're like... Well, that's the wrong paragraph number. Oh, it's not indented. Is it supposed to be indented? So that's what that bill does. It changes the indentations and moves around a paragraph. That bill about paragraphs and indentation passed in the Senate on February 1st, 2023. And the question is, did Senator Chuck Grassley write it? It is beyond the scope of my imagination to imagine that Senator Chuck Grassley of, of Iowa sat down and said, let me just write this down. I think we need 57. It needs to be 58. He doesn't know this. And why should he? That's not his job. But isn't that his job? Isn't the main job of members of Congress to write these bills? Sort of. The main job of members of Congress is to listen to their constituents, the people they represent. But when it comes to the writing of the bills that become laws, that's not always in their wheelhouse. I mean, if you read a bill, like read the actual, it's like looking at source code for a computer program. You look at it and go, yeah, I mean, in theory, this means something, but you can't figure out what it is because it has to refer to every part of the federal code that it interacts with. Have you ever done any computer programming, Hannah? I have not, but I'm going to guess you have. Yep. Just a tiny bit. I used to subscribe to 321 Contact Magazine, and they'd have these pages of code for a computer game that I would like type into my Apple IIc, and I was terrible at it, and it never worked, because the lines of code reference other lines of code, and if any one of them had any mistakes at all, the whole thing would collapse like a house of cards. And if we're talking about proposed bills, every line has to work with the federal code. If you see an ad for a lawyer, they've got all those books behind them, that's the federal code, right? It's huge. It's voluminous. You don't know what's in there. You've never read it. No one has ever read it. You couldn't read it even if you wanted to read it. To put it in perspective, Hannah, the federal code is 220 times longer than the Lord of the Rings trilogy with nary a riddle or a boulder throwing tree in sight. I will have no slights thrown against the Lord of the Rings today. Fair enough. So, how do you know how to write a law? Well, legislators often have an idea of what they want to put into a law. But even when they have an idea on their own or suggested them by a constituent, they don't actually put that into law. So, what they actually do is we have a staff in Congress of ghostwriters for laws. This is the Office of Legislative Councils. And the Office of Legislative Councils actually takes what the legislator says they want to do and puts it into a version of an actual passable law that can interact with all the other types of laws in there. And this is important because if you just put a law in the middle of it, that's a bomb going off the middle of federal code. It'll probably interact with all these other parts of federal code. It won't make any sense. As of right now, the Office of the Legislative Council, who helps members of Congress write laws that aren't spaghetti code, that don't screw up our other bazillion laws, this council has 76 full-time staff, most of them attorneys. And they are as nonpartisan as you can get. 
like I say, they are actually, for members of Congress, they are the most respected office. Members of Congress love these guys. They are totally neutral. Okay, so bills can be tough to write because they're intended to become laws. And laws are technical by necessity because they interact with thousands of other laws. So members of Congress write bills to benefit their constituents, and they do so with the help of the Office of the Legislative Council. Uh, What? Well, I mean, yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought when I set out to make this episode. I thought that because I knew my checks and balances, that the legislative branch writes the laws, the executive branch enforces them, and the judicial branch interprets them. But Dan, Dan laid a big one on me, and I have been wrestling with it ever since he did. Let me have it, Cavadice. Congress doesn't write the majority of their own bills, even through the Office of Legislative Councils. Rather, about two-thirds of the bills that pass through Congress are initially written and proposed by the executive agencies themselves. What? I know. You're telling me that the executive branch is responsible for writing two-thirds of our laws? That's what I'm saying. Executive agencies. There are 438 executive agencies and sub-agencies, and some are colossal like the Department of Defense, and some are not, like the Marine Mammal Commission. Okay, you got to walk me through this. Can you give me an example? Sure. All right, so one of the big things we have to worry about, Congress is supposed to worry about, is interstate transit, right? In the Constitution, you have to have interstate transportation. So we've got a problem. The Mississippi River. Climb in the old paddle steamer, Hannah, and shout Mark Twain, because we're measuring the depth of the mighty Mississippi. Now, I'm going to take a flat-bottom boat down the Mississippi River. And the problem I've got is that because of flooding and because of different levels of water in the Mississippi River, I, we have to change how much tonnage I can put on my flat-bottom boat going down the Mississippi River. Now, there's going to be an agency whose job it is to regulate this. And Congress says, we have no idea what the tonnage per square foot of hull space can be on a flat-bottom boat going down the Mississippi River, depending on the seasons, of course. We have no idea what that's supposed to be. We're going to set up an agency. Congress knows very little about this, but they're the ones who pass laws, according to the Constitution, so it sets up an executive agency. I'm just going to call it the FBBA, Flat Bottom Boats Agency. The president appoints a head of that agency, and then the agency hires a ton of non-political, professional, river and boat tonnage savvy folk to run it. They write rules that have the force of law, and things seem like they're going fine. But I've got a problem. We got a problem because there's all these other boats on the Mississippi that are crowding things. And Congress goes to the agency, hey, what is going on with you guys? You're supposed to be regulating the Mississippi River, regulating these flat-bottom boats. We're having accidents. We're having delays. What is going on? The agency goes, we can't help you, man. We're just regulating the tonnage. We're regulating the boats. I can't regulate these other things that are going on the river. So Congress says, fine, we're going to write a new law that will help you figure this out. So Congress does its oversight. It it hears from the agency that it needs a new law. And the agency is then going to help Congress write the law. Now, the Office of Legislative Councils is going to do the actual ghostwriting on the law, but the agencies have their lawyers as well. And no one knows what is in the law covering the agencies better than the agencies themselves do. It's about expertise. Congress created these agencies in order to give them, in order to give Congress expertise to handle these problems Congress doesn't want to deal with. And congratulations, these agencies now have more expertise than Congress does. Okay, I was surprised to hear that stat that two thirds of laws are written by executive agencies and not Congress. 
But it does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? You want the people who actually know about something to be the ones to write the laws. Was it always this way? No, it wasn't. Uh, First off, 200 years ago, the federal government wouldn't get involved in things like flat-bottom boats. And second, this idea that agencies should have professional staff and not political staff, that happened after a fateful morning in 1881. This goes back uh, to the assassination of James Garfield. The assassination of James Garfield? Yeah, well, before Charles Guiteau killed President Garfield, all the people in these agencies were hired at the whim of the president. We have to understand, in the mid-19th century, The first nine months to a year, all the president did was appoint people jobs. He had thousands of jobs to fill. And so anyone who helped him out during the election, they got a job called the spoil system, thanks to Andrew Jackson. But the reason Garfield was assassinated was that a man felt he was owed a job. And that man was Charles Guiteau. Who thought because he wrote a speech that he thought had been used to help James Garfield, he should be secretary of state. But he would settle for ambassador to England. So... He shot the president. The president eventually died, and they reformed it. So the Veep, Chester A. Arthur, becomes the new president, and nobody wants this to happen again. So Arthur signs a bill that mandates that if someone wants to work in an agency, they can't just be handed the job as a favor from the president. They need to prove they know what they're doing in the civil service. Oh, is this where we get the civil service exam? It is. Looking for a job with the state is a little different than looking for a job with the private sector. About 80% of state jobs are filled by people who have taken civil service exams. The exam process is made up of just three main steps. If you want to work in the post office, for the TSA, for the FBI, for customs, for myriad agencies, you've got to take a test to prove you have a base understanding of that agency and its operations. Now, so far, Nick, this is all pretty logical. People who know stuff help Congress make laws, and only people who prove they know stuff can get a job at those agencies. It's all about information. Well, Hannah, I am glad you said that. If you were in a particularly cynical mood, and I asked you what the prime motivator was for all political action, what would you say? Honestly? Yes. Money. Lobbying. Outside interest groups spending tons of cash to influence politicians and to get their way. Yeah, and I would tend to agree with you. But Dan changed my mind on this a little bit. He told me it's not necessarily about money. It's just about information. And I'll tell you what he means by that right after this break. But first, before we talk about information, Nick and I have an awful lot of it that we like to share with our listeners. If you like trivial deep dives into the fun histories that make us the way we are, you will like our free newsletter, Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks and you never know what's going to be in it. Sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government... 
The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. We're back. You're listening to Civics 101, and we are talking about who writes the bills that become laws in the United States. And Nick, before the break, you said that contrary to what many of us think, it's not all about the money. That's correct. It's never about the money. What it's about is information. Again, that's Dan Casino, professor of government and politics at Fairleigh Dickinson University. We often talk about this in terms of outside interest groups. And the thing we really worry about in political science is outside interest groups uh, perform what we call legislative capture. That is, a situation where the outside interest group has all the information and therefore can tell Congress whatever they like, and Congress is going to wind up doing what the agency wants. People talk about this in terms of, oh, you know, the NRA gives money to Congress, and that's what drives it. It's never about the money. Legislative capture, as in these interest groups like the NRA, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Christian Coalition, they capture the legislative branch because they hold all the cards. They know everything. If the NRA has better information about gun laws than Congress does, then they wind up being able to manipulate Congress and get Congress to do whatever they want. The same thing is true of ARP. ARP knows more about Social Security and Medicare and problems with those programs than Congress does. And because of that, they can then dictate to Congress, hey, you guys need to do this. We worry about this in terms of interest groups, but what people miss out on is that the most powerful interest groups are not the NRA and the AARP. The most powerful interest groups are, in fact, federal agencies, federal agencies advocating for themselves, saying, we need more authority to do something. When those agencies are trusted, their expertise gets trusted. So they are going to wind up being having very influential on what bills get put forward and even writing what those laws actually are. And I want to make this crystal clear, Hannah. Because it's something I think everyone has been through in some way or another in their lives. We've worked together a long time, right? Yeah, I think maybe six years at this point. And you know, there have been times that I've been like, this specific aspect of my job is very complicated. I can't really explain it all. Let me just take care of it. I do. Though in some aspects, I think we all do that. We all have a particular set of skills. Right. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. 
And we kind of become experts at that one thing. Yeah, we become known at our organization as the go-to person for that skill. And we're covetous of it sometimes because we continue to do things the way we like and people depend on that skill and they ask us to do that thing over and over again and it benefits us. And it's not just in our work lives. Like if you're the best tank in your guild in World of Warcraft, you're going to get asked to tank a lot of raids and you get better loot because you do and better gear because you do, which means you're going to be even more in demand. Is that the first World of Warcraft reference that we have used in this show? I think it might be the first. Uh... But being the one who knows everything about a topic, be it in our jobs or in school or in Azeroth, is an enormous power. And that's very problematic, right? Because we want members of Congress to be exercising independent judgment, to be looking at these bills and decide what they really want. And we get this idea of legislative capture. That becomes a real problem because the members of Congress are not really looking at it themselves. They're just kind of saying because this agency says they need it or this intergroup says they need it. And I'm going to bring this back to money now, Hannah. You know what an iron triangle is? Absolutely. We have had teachers asking us to do an episode on iron triangles for years. Do you want to break it down real quick? Okay, I'll do my best. Three points in a triangle. You have an executive agency like the Department of Agriculture. That is point one. They want to get farmers money because that's what they do. Point two is the Agriculture Committee in Congress who also want to get farmers money. And point three are special interest groups representing the farmers themselves, who naturally want more money, who help elect members of Congress who pass bills giving farmers more money. And this triangle is iron because it's unbreakable. Everyone's trying to get everyone more money, and so you just get out-of-control spending. That's not the actual story here. Because members of Congress are not really motivated by raising money. Hold on here. What does he mean members of Congress aren't motivated by raising money? They don't care that much. Think about it. If I'm a member of Congress and I raise a bunch of money, what can I do with it? I can use it to run for re-election. Okay, that's good. But if I have a choice between doing something that's going to upset my constituents and doing something to raise that's going to get me money, I'm going to avoid upsetting my constituents at all costs because the only thing I can do with that money is try and win back the constituents that I've just upset. So I'm not going to do something that's going to upset my constituents. Oil companies don't give money to members of Congress to make them like oil companies. They give money to members of Congress who already like oil companies to try and make sure they stay in office. The money is not changing anyone's vote on anything. What matters is the information. So if I'm a member of Congress and oil company comes to me or farmer or the Department of Agriculture comes to me and says, hey, we need you to do this. I know, oh, I trust those guys. If... AARP comes to me and says, hey, Social Security, we need this technical fix to Social Security. I go, oh, cool. Well, you guys know about this. And I don't want AARP to put me on a list of people they want to get rid of. So therefore, I'm going to do what you say. Does it matter that AARP gives gives me money? Not really. When I did an episode on Citizens United, check it out, dear listener, link in the show notes, etc. The thing that surprised me the most was that in the grand scheme of things, corporations and special interest groups were not giving the staggering sums of money I had expected to political campaigns. It was mostly wealthy, very wealthy individuals. The NRA has been fantastically successful for 50 years, despite actually giving very little in federal elections. They don't have to, because people trust them. And that trust is what's so important. Now hold on, just a quick clarifier here, because I feel a few of our listeners might disagree with this, People out there who don't 
trust the NRA or the ACLU or AARP. It is not we, the public, who have to trust special interest groups or executive agencies. Dan's talking about members of Congress. And to use his example of the NRA, if you're a senator who wants to pass a pro-gun bill, you might not even know where to start. The NRA is going to help you out. They're going to give you rock-solid data, legal advice, polling stats. They'll just take care of it for you. The thing people worry about is, oh, what if these agencies, what if these interest groups start lying to members of Congress, saying there's a problem when there isn't really one? And that almost never happens. Because the thing these agencies have, the most important thing these agencies have is credibility. They go to member of Congress and say, hey, or more likely their staff member, we need you to do this. This needs to happen. Here's our report on this. If they lose credibility and people stop believing what they say, they've got no poll. They've got nothing. Okay, look, iron triangles are real. But they are not about money. They're about information, uh, number one. And number two, they're much more complicated than a triangle. It's not just three things. Uh, the, the version I've seen in the political center is the iron sphere. Like, it's a sphere. It's like a Dyson sphere. Because everyone is working together, but it's all about information flow. That's all it is. Like, the money... People, I, This is what I hate. People say, oh, but they give all this money. Like, yeah, the money is for access. That's all the money is. The money is for access, so I can give you the report I wrote. Except in New Jersey, where it kind of is about money, but that's beside the point. That is who really writes most of the bills today here on Civics 101. And don't worry, New Jersey, I love you all the same. So does Dan. I mean, he lives there. This episode was written and produced by me, Nick Cavadice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Our staff includes senior producer Christina Phillips, producer Jackie Fulton, and executive producer Rebecca Lavoie. Music in this episode by Broke for Free, Kelly Harrell and the Virginia String Band. String Brand? Kelly Harrell and the Virginia String Band, they sang that traditional song about Charlie Gateau. Eric Kilkenny, Holisnico, Sarah the Instrumentalist, Otto Hacker, Eden Avery, Margarita, Spring Gang, Kilo Kaz, Morin Gardner, Scan Globe, Scott Gratton, The Green Orbs, and the executive agent in charge of music beds that move along so briskly, Chris Zabriskie. There was no music by Queen in this episode, even though I do agree that flat bottom boats make the rockin' world go round. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR. New Hampshire Public Radio. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. 
You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.